Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we focus on racism in football. We hear from FIFA Secretary General Fatma Samura, who says that FIFA's main strategy to deal with racism in the game is their anti-discrimination policies and grassroots education campaigns. But there was much surprise and criticism when a FIFA task force against racism and discrimination was disbanded four years ago, after meeting only three times. We get the views of renowned African football journalist. Osasu Obaiwana, who was a member of the task force, they decided to abrogate it, and they said that、um, its mission was over. I do not see how you can say its mission is over when the problem of racism in football is still endemic and present with us. That's coming later. Plus, lots on the English Premier League as debate over the handball law dominated match day three. Let's start though with the biggest story of the week in African football: that South African coach Pitso Mosimani resigning as coach of South African champion Sundowns to join Egyptian giants Al Ahly, having been given a lucrative offer there. Now Mosimani won the Champions League with Sundowns in 2016, beating Al Ahly's rivals Zamalek in the final. He was well paid at Sundowns, a club owned by South African billionaire Patrice Motsepe, and coaches don't usually last long at Al Ahly. But Mosimani says he wanted to move out of his comfort zone, having won 11 trophies with Sundowns. And either it's quite something for a North African club to take a black African coach. It's monumental, Steve. An entirely new frontier, if you think about it, and breaking barriers while at it will be made even better if Pitso does well in North Africa, because it's no secret that there have been huge biases in North Africa for the longest time towards people from. You know, quote unquote, the rest of Africa, as you would have it. So this move is definitely welcome, and I think more than anything else for me, Steve, I especially loved how the whole thing was handled. You know, such class from everyone involved, and you could tell that there's a great deal of respect, you know, between、uh, Pitso Mosimene and the Mamelodi Sundowns management. I mean the entire process from Pitso's statement announcing his departure to Masandawana President Dr. Mutsepe giving his blessing to the move, and then you know Al Ali then coming in to confirm everything via their social media. You could see it was well crafted, well arranged, and. In a way that, you know, at least to me, observed the respect to the different parties involved. We saw Dr. Motsepe, for example, even publicly saying that Pitso and his wife, who also happens to be his agent, you know, made him aware of the talks with Al Ali as they were ongoing. So. Look, while it certainly was a shock to majority of the continent's football followers, it definitely wasn't a shock to those that really mattered in the process. And to be honest with you, Steve, I was thinking, tried tracking back, and I can't remember the last time that I saw something so well handled, so well done, at least within the continent's football circles. <laughs> you know, where let's be honest, more often than not, it's a case of. 
you know, random firing, even more random hiring, (laughs) quitting without notice, clubs left in arrears of the coaches. It's usually a mess. So this has definitely been a breath of fresh air. And I can totally see Pizzo going back to the sundowns one day, albeit in a different role. And he has exited with uh, four years left on his contract. I think it also shows just how much faith the Egyptians must have in him to buy out his claws. And I'm sure that despite initial cheer, it definitely won't be a 100% smooth sailing. Never is in life. But it will be left to see just how the power dynamic will play out between himself and the players and the board and the technical bench. But at the same time, I do think, Steve, that with five league titles and even more importantly, that famous CAF Champions League, he should be able to garner the players' respect. I mean, he's certainly garnered a staggering salary with uh, some reports, Steve, putting it upwards of $200,000 per month. And just very quickly, Steve, allow me to squeeze in something quite important. Has to be said, 2020 has definitely been a year of many firsts, quite unprecedented. (laughs) But looking on the bright side, between Pizzo being the first black African to coach Al-Ali and Nigerian Ndubuisi Egbo, the first African to qualify a club for the UEFA Champions League, It's my sincere hope that these are the signs of a reawakening, Steve, in African football. Yes, the Nigerian Ndubuisi Egbo is the manager of Albanian club KF Tirana. He qualified them for this season's Champions League. Well, it's going to be exciting to see how Pizzo Masimani does at uh, Al Athli. Well, now, staying along these lines, the International Sport Press Association, AIPS, held an online conference this week on racism and discrimination in sport, with speakers from around the world addressing hundreds of journalists with me among them. Now, before the lockdown, there have been numerous incidents of racism in football, and beyond sport, the death in May of George Floyd in the USA caused outrage around the world, with the Black Lives Matter campaign getting much attention after that. Well, at the online conference, the FIFA Secretary-General Fatma Samura, who's from Senegal, was among the speakers. She highlighted the action that FIFA is taking on racism and human rights with anti-discrimination policies and grassroots education campaigns. Now, Madame Samura was asked about the short-lived FIFA Task Force Against Racism and Discrimination, which was set up in 2013 to develop strategies to tackle the issue, but was disbanded three years later, a decision that drew much criticism. But let me also tell you that the task force on racism and discrimination was a temporary structure with a very defined mission. Once this mission was complete, and once it had made its recommendation, the structure was naturally dissolved. And FIFA is definitely aware of the fact that the fight against racism and any other form of discrimination is a long-term process, which is why the task force recommendation led to sustainable measures as outlined in my address. The task force met three times. It was before my time, of course. On May 2013, on September 2013, and on December 2014, meaning more than a year between meetings two and three. 
The termination of the task force was made official on the 23rd of September 2016, after almost two years of no activities, including because of the ban and indictment of the task force chairperson, Jeff Webb. The task force was a personal project of the president at that time, Blatter, with a short-term aim of providing a report to the Congress of 2013 in Mauritius. It aimed at lead the action against racism in the areas of education and prevention, the catalog of sanction and accountability among all those involved in the game. This would lead to the submission of concrete proposal to the FIFA Congress 2013 to help eradicate this evil from football. The task force is, per definition, not a standing committee. It was never meant to last forever. The recommendations delivered by the task force were well intended, but in some cases not feasible at all. And with impossible timelines, given the human and financial resources allocated to this field. The concrete work to fight discrimination in football need to be delivered by FIFA and not by a task force, I'm sorry. Therefore, and to conclude, it's not the non-existence of the task force that is relevant, but the implementation of its recommendation and the existence of a solid, concrete, and permanent work to fight discrimination through the initiatives and programs, as I have mentioned in my speech. Well, that's the FIFA Secretary-General Fatma Samura speaking at an online conference this week on racism and discrimination in sport held by the International Sport Press Association, AIPS. So while there was much surprise and criticism when the FIFA task force against racism and discrimination was disbanded after meeting only three times, Madame Samora says the bigger picture is that FIFA as a whole needs to tackle racism and discrimination on an ongoing basis. Now, Osasu Obaiwana was a member of the task force. He's from Nigeria and a renowned African football journalist. Osasu was also at this online conference, and I asked him what he made of the suggestion that the task force had finished its job, that it had served its purpose when it was disbanded four years ago, when clearly there are still so many issues of racism in football. It's still something that great, because I think the task force was not given the the support from the FIFA administration, both under the the previous FIFA administration led by Sir Blatter and the current administration led by Gianni Infantino. Um, I think it was not just enough for us to come to Zurich and have talk shops. We needed to to be given the power to play a, a greater role in dealing with the problem of racism, especially for problem national federations that hadn't shown any enthusiasm to confront the problem properly. Um, I do not think that since the task force was um, abrogated in 2016, <laughs> its replacement or its... Uh, the lack of having a task force has, uh, you know, made the situation any better. 
uh, I think it was a mistake. And, I mean, they could have expanded the task force. It's mandate. They could have um, brought in new people. They could have changed the people. Because, as, as I've always said, it didn't really matter whether the original members stayed on. They could have changed the membership. They could have done more to give it teeth. But they didn't do that. As I always say, um, the ability of a task force or a committee within the football structures to function effectively is dependent on the support it gets from the FIFA administration to do the job that it wants it to do. Um, Madam Samura mentioned the fact that we only had three meetings in three years, which is true. But that was not the fault of the members of the committee who wanted to really dig their teeth into this problem and to do more. It was because the FIFA administration did not call more meetings. That was the situation while Sir Blatter was in charge. Perhaps the, the, one of the reasons why I think meetings were not called um, was that a lot of problems were going on within FIFA concerning corruption and <laughs> financial mismanagement. And I think this made them take their eyes off the ball in general. But my argument, and as I put it to Mr. Infantino and um, Fatma Samura during a, a meeting I had with them in Abuja many years ago when they had just taken over in Zurich, was that they had the power to revive the task force, they had the power to give it teeth, to expand its mandate, and to ensure that it did a more effective job. But they chose not to do that. They decided to abrogate it and they said that um, its mission was over. I do not see how you can say its mission is over when the problem of racism in football is still endemic and present with us and needs real, real, real issues. And, you know, racism is not just about dealing with racial insults on the field or... Um, insults from spectators towards people of color. It's also about opportunity, employment opportunity, coaching opportunities, um, having people of color being able to ascend to the highest levels of governance in the game where they would have a say and where diversity of staff would then ensure that football around the world is much more nuanced and informed concerning how it takes decisions concerning a game in which you have the whole world participating, not just people from a certain continent. It's it's um I don't it's a difficult one for me to say uh that FIFA do not seem to be serious about dealing with racism and it seems that it's a, a catchphrase you know black lives matter is a catchphrase for the moment everybody's on the pr bandwagon and as soon as um everything dies down uh things just go back to normal that shouldn't be the case this is something that should be confronted with seriousness and vigor and with a sense of purpose uh, and until we see that from FIFA, especially dealing with national associations that are unable to curtail racism within the domestic game of their countries, and I don't see any change in the near future.
That's the renowned veteran African football journalist Osasu Obayuana. He's from Nigeria. I worked with Osasu at BBC Africa for several years, and he was a member of the FIFA task force against racism and discrimination that was disbanded four years ago after meeting only three times. So Osasu saying that FIFA didn't support the task force enough, and that it should be resuscitated and given much more power, given the rising cases of racism in football. And we heard earlier from FIFA Secretary General Fatma Samura saying that the bigger picture is that FIFA as a whole needs to tackle racism and discrimination on an ongoing basis. So the big question remains whether FIFA are serious enough about tackling racism in its many forms in the game. But we heard both sides of the story there. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, Stuart on the English Premier League, as there's much controversy over handball, and Manchester City have spent nearly half a billion dollars on defenders in the past four years, but people still say the defence is not good enough, as they let in five goals last weekend. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA, and our website is planetsport.tv. Recently added there is a look at tips on tackling tough times, a very encouraging blog. You can get there by going to our website planetsport.tv and click on the blog section. You'll see there tips on tackling tough times. Well, to social media now. Last week we asked, was Gareth Bale a success at Real Madrid?、Uh, sometimes there are different views on what we call success in life.、Uh, Gareth Bale returned to Tottenham on loan from Real Madrid after an unhappy time in Spain. He moved for a world record transfer fee in 2013, winning two La Liga titles and four Champions League titles, scoring with a superb overhead kick in the 2018 final. But under coach Zinedine Zidane, he spent a lot of time on the bench, getting paid a huge salary, but not playing much before eventually moving back on loan to Spurs. Here with your comments is Planet Sport Football Africa's Ivan Mangunda. Thanks, Eve. And on WhatsApp, we start today with Albert Kadzombe in Malawi, who says Gareth did have a successful time at Real Madrid. He won four Champions League trophies and two La Liga titles, and that's no mean achievement. But for me, Real coach Zidane has a problem with Bale, and that's why he's been on the bench. But if he's been at Juventus, Bayern Munich, or Barcelona, he could have played far more games because of his high caliber. Modu Drame in the Gambia agrees. Bale certainly was a success when he was newly signed, and in the years that followed, when he played and won titles with coaches like Ancelotti and Mourinho. But with Zidane, he didn't, and so was surplus to the team. But overall, looking at the trophies he won, he was a success, says Modu. Mohamed in Sierra Leone also agrees. Yes, Bale was a success at Madrid, says Mohamed. He won so many major trophies there, which gave the club many good moments. But not everyone shares the same opinion. Nobo Botomani in Malawi says, "No, Bale was not a success because he spent a lot of time on the bench at Real Madrid." And Buzwig Njagua also in Malawi agrees. Bale was not a success at Real Madrid, says Buzwig. I'm a Madrid fan. He impressed in only a few games. He's been a waste of such a huge salary. His performances dropped, and I was annoyed to hear rumors that he wanted to come to my team in England, Manchester United. He's no longer an asset, but a mere liability. And Dominic Ompila in Botswana says simply, "No, 
it was not a success. But the overwhelming response from listeners this week reflects the opposite view. Jerry Coley in the Gambia says, of course, Bale was a success. Look at what he and the team achieved during his era. Indeed, he should have been the king at Madrid after Ronaldo left. But instead, he was sidelined by the coach Zidane. And Suleiman in Cameroon also reflects on Bale's comparison to Ronaldo. I think without a doubt he was very successful, says Suleiman. The problem was his relationship with Zidane. Some people were expecting Bale to perform better than Ronaldo when he arrived, which was impossible. And again, when Ronaldo left, many people thought he would carry the team like Ronaldo did, which was impossible too. And it's great to hear this week from Gagaden, who is in South Sudan. I can easily say Bale was successful when it comes to winning titles with Real Madrid, says Gagaden. But in terms of having enough playing time under coach Zinedine Zidane, he wasn't getting enough. Saihu Dumbaya in the Gambia offers a refreshing, honest view. I'm not a fan of him because I support Barcelona. But in my view, Gareth Bale has been a great success at Madrid. It's just that injury disturbed him a lot and Zidane did not want to count on him. Arenaitwe Emi in Uganda is in no doubt at war. To me, Bale's time at Madrid was a success. I remember that screamer he scored against Atletico Madrid in the Champions League final. And finally, Saja B. Conte in the Gambia sums it up well when he says, In my opinion, Bale was a success at Real Madrid because as a player, he won all trophies Real are playing for. The Champions League, La Liga, Super Cup, Club World Cup, Copa del Rey and King's Cup. But in the later stages after Cristiano Ronaldo left, he should have taken the team forward, but he failed to deliver to expectations. And that caused the fans to boo him, and the coach Zinedine Zidane decided to use younger players instead. So surely, he was a success at the early stages, but later on he became a failure for Real Madrid. So there you are, Steve. The vast majority of our correspondents this week believe Gareth Bale was a success at Real Madrid. But perhaps our final correspondent, Saja, puts his finger on it most accurately, saying that the success he enjoyed at the start of his time at Real Madrid eluded him over the last two years. Thanks, Ivan. That's Ivan Mangunda there. Thanks to all who got in touch with comments. Apologies if we didn't have time to read out yours. Now to our European football expert, Stuart Weir, in the UK, as we focus on the English Premier League. And there were some particularly strong comments made last weekend over the new handball law, which some say is killing the game. Now, Tottenham drew 1-1 with Newcastle, who equalised in stoppage time with a penalty entirely against the run of play after Andy Carroll headed across against Eric Dyer's arm from close range. The penalty decision was made after video assistant referee consultation. Callum Wilson converted and Spurs boss Jose Mourinho walked down the tunnel in disgust before the final whistle. And a similar decision went against Crystal Palace in their game against Everton with manager Roy Hodgson not happy at all, Stuart. Yes, as you say, in the Tottenham-Newcastle game, Eric Dyer had his back to the play, the ball was headed against his arm and he was penalised for handball. Newcastle manager Steve Bruce, whose team, of course, gained a point from the incident, said, we have lost the plot completely. And unless we change this rule, we will ruin football as a spectacle. We need to get together as Premier League managers and tell the Premier League it just has to stop. Handball is deliberate or it isn't handball. Everton beat Crystal Palace through a penalty 
awarded when the ball was kicked against Joel Ward's arm. Because Ward's arm was not part of the body silhouette, it was deemed to be in an unnatural position and making the body bigger. So the penalty was awarded. And again, as you say, Palace manager Roy Hudson said, handball is when you deliberately handle the ball to stop a goal. When the ball is kicked against you and you can't do anything about it, it's just not handball. Then there was the Chelsea-West Brom game where Tammy Abraham's last-minute equaliser came after the ball had hit a teammate's arm. It was accidental handball, but last season that goal would not have been allowed. But apparently that's okay this season. I am just confused. But Steve, last season, after the first three weekends of the Premier League season, we'd seen eight penalties awarded in 30 games, none of them for handball. This season, we've seen 20 penalties awarded in the first 28 games and six of them for handball. And other countries in Europe have been using this new interpretation last season. And some comparisons are interesting. In the 2019-20 season, a total of 19 penalties in the Premier League for handball. Whereas in Spain's La Liga, there were 48 and in Italy's Serie A, 57. That is three times as many penalties last season for handball in Italy as in the Premier League. And, I mean, reactions in Europe are pretty much the same as in the Premier League. Lutz Wagner, the German chief referee, said, The rule changes have only brought confusion. And already this season in Italy, the Lazio coach Simone Inzaghi accused Roma's Aidan Dzeko of looking for a penalty and getting it saying that he had deliberately driven his cross against an opponent's arm. And the Atalanta manager, Gasparini, reacting to two handball penalties given against his team, said, what are we meant to do? Cut our arms off. Now, you may laugh, but you often see defenders now standing with their arms behind their back. I'm told that Premier League referees have been told to exercise more common sense, but I don't think this is the last time we'll be talking about handball this season. Yes, so we'll get ready for lots more penalties being given for handball. Asking for your thoughts on this on social media this week, what do you think about the change to the handball law? Uh, Some say this new law is damaging the game, but there had been calls to make the rules clearer. So what do you think? You can go to our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa, and post a comment there, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero and a few surprise results last weekend Stuart especially Man City losing five two at home to Leicester it was a remarkable game Manchester City scored after four minutes and kept the lead almost until half time and having 72 percent of possession during the game but they lost conceding five goals And it's 17 years since City have conceded five goals at home. And it's the first time any team that Pep Guardiola has ever managed that has conceded five goals in a game. And three of the Leicester goals came from penalties. And incidentally, that's the first time since 1957 that any team in the top tier of English football has scored three penalties in a game. But it just seemed that any time a Leicester player got past a Manchester City defender, the defender fouled him. 
Former Manchester United and England defender Gary Neville said in commentary, the defenders are just not good enough. And Pep Guardiola said afterwards that his defenders were scared and panicked. Now, he's done something about it because this week Manchester City have signed Ruben Diaz from Benfica for $83 million. And earlier in the season, they signed Nathan Ake from Bournemouth for $52 million. And in fact, in his four years at Manchester City, Guardiola has signed several top defenders like Americ Laporte for $75 million, and he's been excellent. But he's also signed John Cancelo, $75 million, Benjamin Mendy, $66 million, John Stones, $64 million, Kyle Walker, $61 million. So that's $475 million spent on defenders in four years. But at the weekend, they looked awful. But just to find a positive in this, Jimmy Vardy scored three of Leicester's goals, two of them penalties. And Vardy has won more penalties than any player in the history of the Premier League, 19. And he's also scored more penalties than anyone, 22. And another interesting statistic is that he scored 35 goals against the so-called Big Six clubs in the Premier League. That's a great achievement. And finally, Steve, only... Three players have ever scored three goals against a team managed by Pep Guardiola. That's Lionel Messi, Sergio Aguero and Jimmy Vardy. And Vardy has done it twice. Well, that makes Jamie Vardy look very special. Thanks, Stuart. That's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers and Yvonne Mangunda in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi and Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.